I'm Ted, and I'm an alcoholic. And through the grace of God and fellowship of people like you, and sponsorship, I've been serving since February the 4th, 1964. So yeah, I'm very grateful. Um, I'm, I'm very honored, and, and it's a great privilege for me to be asked to come and speak at the Buckeye Roundup. I'm, I've heard about the Buckeye for a number of years. I suppose five. I think this is the fifth year, is it not? Um, and um, heard of all the enthusiasm that existed here, and I have seen that tonight. And I really believe that that's the sort of thing that we that we need to show in Alcoholics Anonymous. So maybe maybe you don't think so, but I do because I when I first got sober, that you know when. There were a bunch of old guys sitting around, like Marty was talking about earlier, and they were nodding away, you know, and looking very spiritual, except they never smiled, you know, and there was a joke that went around Alcoholics Anonymous at that time um, about a sweet young thing who came bouncing into a meeting where there were um, some of these old gentlemen, or certainly one old gentleman who was right up at the front of the room, and they said that this little girl said to Peter, are you having fun? And he said, Well, yes, I'm, 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 I'm fine. I'm, I'm sitting here being spiritual. And she said, Well, then why don't you tell your face? <laughs> and when people are enthusiastic, they tell their faces. And, and their faces are the welcoming thing. What was, I mean, I don't know about you, but what were, what do you remember? I mean, I remember very darn little about my first few meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. As a matter of fact, for the first year, I remember very darn little because I was in such a first class. It was really selfishness, self-centeredness, that we think is the root of our problem type of deal. But to me, it was like a haze. I was in a haze, and I, I didn't ever really quite connect with people. And, I, you know, I was just terrified is what I was. I was just terrified. I had no idea what I was doing here. I don't, I didn't know how I got here. I didn't know if I was going to stay here. I, I couldn't think. I mean, it was, my brain was like having a, like 25 pounds of worms in a 10 pound bag. You know, it was just like, it was just horrible. It was awful. But I remember the touch of people's hands. I remember them wel- welcoming me to the meeting. I remember them saying, we're glad you're here. Because I, I don't know about you, but I was not a social person. I was just not social. I drank alone. I drank in my room. Um, I, I remember hearing Holly Martin say, give a talk years later after I'd been sober a number of years in which she said, um, um, are you, do you drink alone? And, and she said, if I'm buying, yes. If you're buying, no. And I, I love that, you know, because if they were buying, I was going to drink with them. But other than that, I drank alone. I preferred to drink alone. I was selfish and self. I was, I drank to get drunk. I didn't drink. I drank to get out of here. I drank to go there. I drank to be a Martian. You know, I drank to, to, to to get boobs, you know, I drank for, to be able to tolerate some guy in some car somewhere, you know, I drank because I had a test the next day, I drank because, because I was funny looking, I drank because I was clumsy, I drank because I was too smart, 
and so succinct and so, you know, right to the point that they managed to come through to me. And I'll tell you, if they can come through to me, they can come through to anybody. Because the, the prejudice and the fear and the, and the, the resentment and the pride and all of that stuff that was the scream that Marty was talking about, it took something to get through. And what it took was an act of God. And Jane Holler walked right up to me and performed an act of God. Sometimes, and I don't know if this is true in this area, I have to assume it is, we as alcoholics go on this huge spiritual search. We go out here. We go, we go to, to, maybe it's in religion and, and Marty talked about that. Maybe it's in the psychiatrist's office. Maybe it's, uh, doing good work in, in, you know, for the poor or something. Maybe it's a new kind of meditation. You know, maybe it's a new book or something that we can read or something. When in my experience, you know, it's the simplest of things are the most spiritual. The simplest of, there is no, no more simple, no, no more profound thing that I have ever heard in my whole life and that I have, it is the most efficacious thing I've ever heard and that is, be still and know that I am God. Be still. It's so hard for me to be still and to connect, to actually sit down and be still and know that that I'm God is is a is a miracle. I mean, it's a spiritual thing in itself. I think we just get sometimes a little fancy. I mean, I do. I want a big answer for what I think is a big big problem. And what it really is, is I'm selfish and self-centered. And God doesn't come in where he isn't invited. It's really that simple. Let me tell you a story. This will just raise a hair on your arm. I owe you in this area my life. In this area, my life. Because 33 years ago, my sponsor came to Cincinnati, Ohio. It was the Thanksgiving after her initial sobriety, January the 1st, the year before I got sober, which was 1963. It was the Thanksgiving of 1963, and she came here to see an aunt. And the aunt was in a nursing home. And when she visited this aunt in the nursing home, the nursing home had decided that they were going to have a treat for all the old people in the nursing home, and they rolled out a tea cart full of every kind of booze that you could imagine. And my sponsor said, yes, hit her in the face, because for years, she and her husband and in her family before that, they had had a teacup, and that's what they rolled their whiskey on. And she said at that point in her sobriety, she wanted to drink so bad, so bad, that she had to excuse herself from the nursing home and leave and run back to the hotel in downtown Cincinnati, which is no longer there. 
And she went to the hotel manager, and the hotel manager said, what's the matter with you? And she said, I'm an alcoholic, and I need to go to a meeting. She said, don't worry, lady, all my cab drivers are in AA. <laughs> and he took her out, and this cab driver said, I'm taking you to 405 Oak Street. And she walked into 405 Oak Street. And a guy named Louis, a big guy named Louis, took her to the back room where there were two couples sitting, and those two couples would not let go of her for two days while she was here. And one of the AA cab drivers drove her to the airport and put her on the plane. They never let her out of her hotel room for two days without one of them. Now, that's my sponsor that I have now in, in Alcoholics Anonymous in Omaha, Nebraska. And her life was literally saved that day by the people in this area. And so was mine. Because Miss Jimmy Muller has helped me to participate in my own recovery. And I firmly believe that without sponsorship and without directions in the 12 steps and all of the service things that we do in AA, without having a sponsor in those sorts of things, that I, this cookie would have been dead a long, this cookie would have crumbled. I'd have been dead a long time ago. Because of and by myself, I will drink again. Because that's the nature of alcoholism. Of and by myself, I will drink again. Because that's what I always think of and by myself. And I don't need that. I don't think there's anything more spiritual than being accountable to somebody. Because it's the last thing I want to do. Freedom, freedom really is not doing what you want to do. Freedom is being able to do the things you don't want to do. That's freedom. Freedom is being able to go to a meeting when you don't want to go to a meeting. Freedom is being able to do to make amends to people when you don't want to make amends to that jerk. You know, he's a jerk. He's a jerk. You don't want to make amends to him. If he's a jerk, he's just going to make him more sure he's right if you make amends to him. You know, that kind of thing. But freedom, and I have, the only way that I have experienced freedom is through the actions of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'll tell you something, I would have never taken the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous if somebody hadn't made me. Somebody had to make me. They had to say, this is what we do. I would have never done that. Who wants to do that? Who wants to do that? Who wants to quit running the show? I wanted to, I wanted to run the show because I had a divine right. <laughs> I knew, right? I knew. I knew. You know, I knew. I had this feeling inside of my brain that, that it, it's so, it's so, I, I want to say diagnosis. It's not diagnosis. I know it's not. But it's so weird. It's so opposite. It's so oppositional. On the one hand, I want to run the show. On the other hand, I'm scared to death. When you got a, a scared to death maniac running the show, you got my life. You know, that's my life. And I, so I need somebody that's going to say, be still. Be still. And she, her life is safe here. 
and so is mine. And isn't it interesting because LA really is a small place. And I, I always want to think when I'm trying to help somebody else, when somebody comes to me for help, I always want to remember this. I got a newcomer at my shoulder. And I want to behave like I do. Because I may be, my actions may be the only thing that that newcomer sees about Alex Nyland. Because if he sees something or she sees something that isn't appropriate or isn't integrative, then that's the way life was for me. I thought everybody was like that. I thought everybody cheated. I thought everybody lied. I thought everybody was out to get what they could get. I thought everybody was there to put me down. I thought everybody in the world was a scary thing. And if I had come into Alcoholics Anonymous and I had seen people who were scary like that, who were not honest and who were not integrous and who were not doing the deal, uh, maybe I would have died. Maybe Jean would have died if Lou hadn't taken her by the hand. And taking me to the back of 405 I don't know, but I don't want to take a chance. I want to be available. And that's a far cry from what I, you know, that's a far cry from what I am. Because selfishness, self-centeredness, that, I think, is the root of my problem. Driven by a hundred forms of fear. It is. I am not well. I, you know, when Marty was talking, Marty did a great talk if you don't hear. When I was 15 years sober, I thought I was about as well as I was going to get. I thought I had heard it all. I had been through the set thoroughly and completely twice. Done three fifth steps. You know, I was just, I mean, ain't no flies on me, honey. You know, I did every, every service position there ever was, sponsored everybody who wouldn't, who, you know, who wasn't laid down, you know. I mean, I just, I just thought I was, I thought it was well as I was Had I known at that point how much different it would be and how much better I would feel over the last 18 years of my life from that point on, I would never be able to describe it to you. Because I am quiet as heart most of the time. I am integrity most of the time. I am loving most of the time. And I do have a lot of fun most of the time. But I'm not perfect. And if I was, I don't guess I'd be here, would I? I mean, I wouldn't be an alcoholic anonymous if I thought I was perfect. I still have a lot of things that are, you know, bothering me. And I, and I think that that's just challenging for me to be here. Because if I, I've always been a person who was a sort of a short distance runner. You know, once I have done it, why do it again? You know, once you've accomplished it, it, it's done. You know, why do it again? I'm also an artist. 
and I know that, and I have painted for years, and I know that the harder you work on a painting, the less likely it is for it to be a work of art. The more God there is, and the more spirit there is in a painting, the more freedom I feel when I'm approaching the canvas, the better it is. And life is like that. You know, life is like that. If I take life as a chore, it's a chore. If I take it as every day has an opportunity for me, then I'm going to have a good time. But again, I'm human, and I have worries, and I have problems. You know, I'm almost 60 years old. That's there's some problems. <laughs> I'm nearly 60 years old. But if I think about it all the time, I become more than 60 years old. <laughs> if I think about it all the time, I'm dying today. I remember my dad, he's one of my very greatest heroes in alcoholic anonymous. He said, we all are decrepitating. And I thought, oh my God, you know, you get, you, as soon as you're born, you start decrepitating. That's wonderful. You know, what in that, well, I mean, he was, he was laughing about it. But I mean, that, you know, we, life is a challenge. And we are coming from the very best place in the world to meet life. We have so much help that other people don't. We have so many friends that other people don't. We have so many intimate relationships with people. You know, I would say to you, in, uh, from this podium tonight, things I would have never told a friend, ever. Because I know you know. And I know you probably did it anyway, so you did, you know. <laughs> so I am I'm very grateful for all of you here. I'm very grateful to be here, and I thank you. I, I don't take my membership in Alcoholics Anonymous as a right. I believe it's a privilege. I don't think it's my right to be here among you. I think it's a privilege to be here among you. And I'm very serious about that, because it seems to me that there's an awful lot of people who feel like it's their right to be here, and they treat Alcoholics Anonymous as though it is their right to be here, and they treat it classy. If I feel it's a privilege to be here, I will treat this place as though it is privilege for me to be in it. I will be the best member of Alcoholics Anonymous I can be. And I will treat the meetings with respect, and I will treat the people in it with respect. And in so doing, I honor Alcoholics Anonymous. I always forget to do this, so I'm going to say this because I always feel bad when I sit down. I am married. (laughs) To a wonderful guy. I've been married to him for over 31 years. In AA, both of us are in AA. I met him in AA. I do have a child. I had two children and one died. An alcoholic man. He didn't die in AA. I was married. My son is uh, 
29 years old, and he is a will be soon eight-year member of Alcoholics Anonymous. So he didn't. He, he chose to drink, Marty, <laughs> and uh, and he did. <laughs> and if there any of you who have children, brothers. Who have driven their mothers to distraction. This is one mother who was driven to distraction. And I heard the greatest story when I was going through this period of time in my life. When I wanted to kill him and I was scared to death for him and I wanted to pull him down the stairs, but I wanted to pick him up and put him back together again. And I knew just exactly what was right for him, but he didn't want to listen to me. And, you know, the whole Al-Anon thing. I heard this joke. CDs, CDs, you can see the wrinkles, don't you? There's a niece and blind mark. <laughs> I have my window, too. I'd have my face pressed up against that window at 2 o'clock in the morning waiting for that little SOB to come home. And I'd make promises to God, and I'd say, Oh, God, if you just make it the third car, if it's the third car, I'll cook dinner for a year. I won't, I promise I won't fuss at him. I won't, you know, I'll be kind to him and everything. And then the third car would go by, and I live on a very short street, so there's not many cars on it. And the third car would go by, and I said, Well, let me renegotiate, you know. I'll renegotiate this. It would only be me and the dog. The dogs would stay up with me, and my husband, the, the spiritual giant, would be sleeping in bed. But then when I would go in, I would kick his foot just so he could wake up and worry with me. <laughs> so I know all about that sort of thing. But he's sober today. He's married to another member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I have two grandchildren who are just absolutely alive my life because I don't have to take care of them all the time. <laughs> I like being a grandmother a lot better than I like being a mother, I'll tell you. So I, all of those things, and, and I, we, we own our own business, and, uh, and that's a, a heavy burden sometimes, you know, because when you own your own business, you really never leave it, and it, it's always with you, and you have a lot of hardships with that, and you have a lot of responsibility because there's people working for you, and it's not something that an alcoholic really relishes. I don't know about you, but I don't relish taking on a bunch of responsibility, and, and yet we have been so blessed and and have been so successful, and, and I, I mean, I have to count my blessings with all of that, too. So I wanted you to know those little autobiographical things. My parents both are still alive. So, you, you know, I may be around for a while unless I'm hit by a bus or something, but um, I want to make this life that I am living the very best that it can be. And I want to make, I'm, I want to make, I just want to make a I don't know about you, but when I was, when I was growing up, it wasn't something that I thought of as being a goal in life to make a difference in somebody's life. Um, um, and on a bad day to day, I don't give a crap whether I make a difference or not, you know. <laughs> but on a good day, I do. And, uh, and, and most of the time, I do. Um, I, I, was, uh, I was born in St. Louis, Missouri. 
and I was the oldest child of a medical student and and a teacher. And we I was I grew up above a delicatessen on what they call Dago Hill in St. Louis. And um right from the get go I had red hair, I was born with black eyes, um, and something wrong with my shoulder and I, I was just special right from the beginning. I mean just from the beginning. I learned to swear at a very early age from my medical student father and his medical student buddies and uh, they just thought I was precious, just a precious little thing. And I remember when my sister came into the world and I really wanted to send her back wherever she came from. And then they got another one right after that and I, I began to get the idea that I wasn't going to be the only child anymore, you know. But I still had that feeling of being the only one. You know, of being the special one. And that's got to be alcoholism or something. I know it's neuroticism, but I mean, I think it's alcoholism. Is that I thought that somehow people should treat me special. And uh, I was, a, I was a, I was, you know that Tasmanian devil thing that, that all the kids were at a church and stuff? That's how I felt. I have never seen a picture of myself that so describes it the way that I felt. I felt like I had these little beady eyes that were just like peering out from inside this tiny body because it was very small in those days. This tiny little devil of a thing inside of me that just, I could just be good for so long. You know, it's just it's Everything I had to be good for so long. And then I just had to be bad, you know, and I just be bad. And I and I could I could feel it building up, you know, before I ever took a drink was I felt this building up inside of me. And uh I get oh, I cut off all my sister's hair one time because I didn't think she was supposed to have any. You know, she was little, small, I cut them all off, you know. I spent a lot of time in my room. We, we lived on an Air Force base, and I listened to planes take off and land, and they take off and land, because everybody else was out playing. I was always grounded. It seemed like I spent my life grounded. I, uh, I threw a hornet's nest at some guy one time. <laughs> just to see what would happen, you know? Just, just being bad, you know? And then, of course, I always remember seeing like, Remember, did you know that commercial? So sorry. Know that one, you know? The one where the guy's going, I don't know what it's for, some car. So sorry. Too far, you know? <laughs> That's the way I get felt, you know? When I, I get into those things and I just, I just have gone a little too far. <laughs> and the guy, I mean, he was like, <laughs> Like this for weeks whenever I'd come around him, you know. He'd be... <laughs> I had to make a mention, and he's a drunk in San Francisco. <laughs> I don't think that had anything to do with the drinking, but. He became a newspaper reporter for some reason. Anyway, um,. Another time, there was, remember the Berlin blockade? 
Nobody's smart in I presume some of the older people know remember the poor one more They had a wall that divided the land. And uh we in the sixth grade picked up money for candy lift and we bought candy bars and airlifted them to we were in Air Force and you know our fathers were. And the Berlin for the the kids behind the wall they could have candy. And there's this big guy that I just hated because he told me no all the time. And he was a real kind of a nerd type, you know. He had a little tiny bitty head and he had little tiny shoulders and a great big butt. He had a huge big butt. It looked like one of those clowns, you know, that you punch like this. <laughs> and he wore strange clothes and he wore... Tennis shoes with lightning bolts on the side, and we called him Flash, because he was so not a Flash, and then he was just Sony Flash, and he wouldn't bring in his money, and I said, well, you know, he weighed like 600 pounds or something, and I said, well, listen, you don't bring your money in tomorrow, I'm going to beat you up, and, and of course, I weighed 56 pounds, and he goes, really, really, I'm really scared, you know, like, thinking secretly was, but he didn't let on as he was. So after school the next day, of course he didn't bring any money. And I took it personally. And uh, I waited in the bushes outside the school. <laughs> as he passed by, I jumped out of the bushes on his back and, and crammed my puny fist up into his nose and gave him a bloody road nose and I rode him all the way to the ground. Just, he fell to the ground and I wrote, and it just was this, there's this sense of power that was just unbelievable. Unbelievable. Back in the room again, listening to the airplane take off and like, I mean, it was just things all, all the time. I got into high school, you know, I was, I was a smart kid and I, I studied well, and I I'd been in an English girls' school, and uh, uh, one time I hadn't thought about this in years. I in this English girls' school, it was an Episcopal school, and they had wine. Well, I'm not an Episcopal, but I I became an Anglican, which is uh, sort of a low Episcopal, I guess. But they had wine in this thing. I don't know what it is. I mean, I oh, I was only in it because I wanted to get out of playing lacrosse. That's the only reason I ever became religious. <laughs> but anyway, um, we drank this altar wine. We drank the wine that was, we knew where it was hidden, and several of us drank the wine. And, and all I remember about chapel that morning was we, we had to go to chapel every morning. We were sitting there, and and then flies were it was summer, and flies were you know flying around, and they were landing on people's heads, and we just thought that was so funny, and we just rolled in the aisle because we thought it was so funny, and of course I wasn't at home, but I had to go my time in my room and there were no airplanes but it was just as boring for that and uh, then I went to, went to Texas and, and went to high school in Texas and I uh, 
had been in a girls' school, so I had never dated anybody before. I didn't want to date anybody. I, um, I would rather argue with them or fight with them or, or drink with them or something like that. I really didn't want to have anything to do with that other stuff, you know. It was just that sex stuff. I, I didn't want to have anything to do with that sex stuff. Except when I drank. And then when I drank, I became very interested in that sex stuff. <laughs> and I sometimes was not accountable for my actions during that sex stuff that would go on in the backseat of 56 Caroline Ford. But I got a diamond out of it. <laughs> it wasn't a ring. It was a little tiny thing on a chain. Remember those things? That they, those little tiny things? Anyway. Um... It was at that time that I learned that drinking made my boots go. Because I was really skinny and really, I had no ins and outs. You know, I had no waist. I still don't. I had no waist. I had no hips. I had no boots. And I was drinking. Oh, my Lord. I mean, only an alcoholic can, can tell you. I mean, an Al-Anon, no, I'm not picking on you anything, but an Al-Anon, when they talk about drinking, it's almost like, <clears throat> you know, the way we describe it. But to me, it's like ambrosia, you know, it put it in and it just rolled down. And it just felt like the velvet highway kind of, you know, it just rolled down and it rolled. You know, it just, yep, I mean, just radiant. I mean, it just out over, you know, and it just, Wasted nipping, you know, your food would grow, you know, and you just I get those feelings that you never had those feelings before, you know, and I get these, and the more beer I drank, the more feelings I got, you know. And then, and you know, and then, but, and that's magic. But then in the morning, you know, you'd wake up and you'd think, oh, not him. Oh, <laughs> where has your face gone, him? And you, I spent all day avoiding him. You know, hiding behind locker doors and stuff. Oh, there he is. <laughs> kind of interesting. I did, in high school, I did fall in love with one guy. He was just the nicest guy, and uh, I really did love him, and um, I, then I went off to Paris. I literally went off to Paris, and when I went off to Paris, things changed between us, but I had treated him very poorly, as most of us do, and I uh, ended up having to make amends to him. I made amends to him about 10 years ago. Uh, sitting across the breakfast table in Fort Worth, Texas. And uh, it was a, a great experience. I had not known where he was, where he was. And, you know, my sponsor had told me when I was making my amends that there should be three categories. The, the amends that I would make immediately, the amends that I might make or might not make, and then there would be the amends that I would never make. Or there would be amends that I really didn't know where the people were, but I would be willing to make them if I found them or if my inquiries about them. So I was uh, speaking at a, uh, a state conference there in Fort Worth, and I just, out of, on a whim, I picked up this, the uh, phone book. And there he was, 
right in the very front of the phone book, right in, under the bead. And I called him up and uh, met him for breakfast the next morning and made him answer me. And uh, I came home from that and I told my husband that I had made amends to this fellow. And I said, and I'm glad that I'm here in Bellevue and he's in Fort Worth because he's still cute. <laughs> <laughs> but I wouldn't have wanted, I wouldn't have wanted to marry him. He's married five times. <laughs> I think there was something wrong with him even though it wasn't alcoholism. <laughs> um, and, and a lot of funny things happened to me. I mean, when I was drinking, I, the, the, I think sometimes we get really fancy, too, when we're talking about being powerless over alcohol. We had a terrible storm out in Nebraska just a couple of weeks ago. We had 18 inches of snow on top of the leaves on the trees. So all the maple trees and the softwood trees are destroyed. I mean, they just ripped apart. And there were, I mean, branches laying everywhere. We lost electricity. I lost electricity for almost well, six days, which is a long time for me. And I need to tell you, you talk about being powerless. I, I knew what it was to be powerless. And you know what? I'm so alcoholic that the second, my husband is so much better at this than I am. Because he just goes, you know, just fix it, hon. <laughs> when will they fix it? I don't want them to fix it. I want wind. I want the little men with the wrenches right now. You know, I want it. my house. Don't they understand? It's my house. Who cares if there's 130,000 other people that don't have power? I want my power back. <laughs> and then I got, so, you know, so it's the old running the show again. And then I got the, they're not fixing it because it's me. <laughs> oh, thousand other people, and I'm not fixing it because of me. Of course, I knew they weren't serious thoughts, but those are the thoughts I have. And I'll tell you something. I could stand here and not tell you those things. But you see, it's dangerous when I don't. Because I know. I know that those are the thoughts that go through my head. If I tell you, then it's no longer a big deal. If I keep hoarding it in there, my pride says, don't tell them things like that, they'll think it's good. <laughs> no, just alcoholics. There's a difference, you know. I mean, I, I, I need to be responsible for my recovery. I mean, I think it's a big cop-out to say that you can't do something about things like that. And, and please don't misunderstand me when I say this. I think a lot of people say, well, it'll, it'll be removed in God's time. And that's very true, except that i got to be there. Do you understand what I'm saying? i got to take the action. God's not going to come where he isn't invited. It's a cop-out to sit there and say, well, I guess he doesn't want it removed yet. Because I just stole again last night. Come on. You know, that's just, that's putting an awful big onus on God, don't you think? I mean, I think it's, it, we really need to take that responsibility on ourselves. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I know what it feels like to be tired. And I, this, this past week, I literally was tired. And literally was tired. Powerless and powerless. And I called up my sponsor, of course, that's what I do. I, you know, and I said, I'm powerless. And she said, he hoped it is. 
I said, what can I do? He said, nothing. And her son was there, and he's got 25 years of sobriety, and he said, who is this? And he said, I said, Peggy. He said, oh, of course. <laughs> I hated being powerless when I was sick. I hated it. I always wanted to have the power because it made me feel enough. And, you know, when it nipped in my waist and flare out my boots, I was full of power. Full of power. When I would, you know, when when I felt alien or strange in a situation and I drank, it made me feel powerful in that situation. It means made me feel okay in that situation. And the, the greatest example of powerlessness that I can really can think of is, and sometimes I really do think we get too fancy. We give big, big, fancy, 75 cent words to stuff. And that's not really necessary, but we like to do it. At least I like to do it, which makes me think I'm smart, you know, if I know all these good words. But really, the best example I can give you of being powerless is the fact that when I was drinking, towards the end of my drinking, I really could not, with any certainty whatsoever, tell you where I was going to go to the bathroom. I woke up in the night one time. I did, I didn't wake up. I came to. I had to go. I mean, the way I drank, I drank cases of beer. I had to go. I went over, opened up the door, squatted down, peed, and it was in my shoes. In the closet. I thought I was in the bathroom. Another, I had a purse. <laughs> fisherman's thing with the rope and the wooden lid and everything and I had these little chairs in our bedroom and I put that purse on the chair every time and I woke up one morning and I, my sister slept in the same bedroom with me and she had all these stuffed animals on her bed and she used to sleep with them all around her you know just in certain places and I used to love to mess them up you know just <laughs> move them around drove her crazy She'd wake up, you know, and she'd wear these curlers that pulled her skin over her face front like this and look like that. And I woke up and I walked over and I looked at my purse and it was funny. It looked like it had a nervous breakdown or something. It was flat. And I opened it up and I said, oh my God. And my sister rose up out of all these animals and goes, I believe you peed in your purse. <laughs> now I'm going to tell you something, folks. That's powerlessness. <laughs> Crazy people know where to go to the bathroom. Alcoholics forget. <laughs> now let me, let me use that as an example. Can you go to... I was on the dean's list at the University of California, Riverside at the time. I was studying. I was doing graduate work in A la Recherche du Temps Perdu by Marcel Proust, a known laudanum addict. And I was doing good work. Now, what do I do? Go to school and say, hey, guess what I did last night? <laughs> I'm beating my purse. 
No, they don't want to sit. They don't want you to sit next to them in class if you're doing that. <laughs> you might be eccentric, but they, they don't want you dirty. You know, it's like, ugh. That's powerless. And it's a disease. It's a conspiracy of violence. You can't tell anybody, so you just, <laughs> pardon the pun, sit on it. <laughs> You can't tell those people those things that are bothering you because they might say, what? Quit drinking. I couldn't. I mean, I, I couldn't. I knew that. I was, my father is, as I told you, one of my heroes, and he was a graduate of Washington University in St. Louis. He's a doctor. And he graduated from undergraduate school there, and he graduated from the medical school at Washington University. And I got into Washington University in my senior year of college, and I was drinking like a fish. And this is a very expensive school, very exclusive school. It's a very hard school to stay in. And I got taken drunk the week of the final. I drank a case of port. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was bad. And my stomach hemorrhaged. My folks were out of town. I propped my feet up and laid in a, in a position like I looked myself up in my dad's medical books. I propped myself up like this so that everything would drain this way. I waited. I drank sips of diluted milk and water for about three days until my stomach stopped bleeding because I was, I was throwing up blood. And at the end of that period of time, I was so federal when I, I just, I was, I was so federal when I rose. I, I damn near died. I can tell you, I damn near died. And the first thing I did was to walk across the street to the filling station and buy a six pack of bush. That's alcoholic. Standing in front of a mirror, with a, an empty bottle of pop-off vodka and rubbing the sides of it to get the last drop to come down that bottle and into my mouth. That's alcoholism. And it's pathetic. And that's the kind of drinker I was. I put my family through an entire graduation ceremony from Washington University knowing that I wasn't going to graduate. I got in line, got somebody else's cap and gown, sat in the audience. Thank God we didn't have to walk across the stage. But my name wasn't on the list. And I had this, the gown was too long because it was somebody else's. I stole somebody's cap and gown. And as I was walking back from that quadrangle afterwards, I can remember as if it was yesterday. There was the path, the gravel path, and the grass going right down to the sides of it, and this down sweeping on it like this, and, and my father put his hand under my arm. And he said, we've got to talk. I just talked to him this morning. 
What are, what am I going to say to him? I didn't mean to do it, Daddy. It's the last thing I would do to you. I love you. You're my hero. I wouldn't do that kind of thing to you. <laughs> I wouldn't do that kind of thing to you. I wouldn't. But see, I drink. And when I drink, I do these things. And all of those things combined, all of those little things combined, gave me something. It was a gift that I will never, ever take for granted. God help me. I was given the gift of desperation. Because I wouldn't have done the things that I had to do. I wouldn't have gone the places I had to go if it hadn't have been for desperation. I was just desperate. And you know, a lot of people say, you know, they talk about surrender. And I don't surrender. I give in. I compromise. I wait. I kind of surrender like, okay, 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 whatever. A little bit till the next time. That's how I surrendered. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous and I was given the gift of something entirely different. I had been surrendered. I had been surrendered. God came in into that small, tiny crack in the door and gave me the gift of desperation. And I've been sober ever since. And I'd like to talk just for a minute about a few things that I really believe are so important to me. As I've told you, I've been through the steps. I've lived in lots of different places. I met and married this. I will tell one story, which is one of the reasons I like Red Bow so much. We were married not very long. Okay. Um, we weren't married very long, and uh, we're both going to our meetings. He is not my sponsor. He's never been my sponsor. Thank you very much. I wouldn't have chosen him to be my sponsor. Thank you very much. He suffers fools a lot more graciously than I do, let me tell you. Um, he's a great man. He really is a great man. And he's a steady man, and he's my rock. But at that time, we had no money. And I had always had money. And I was a spoiled, and we were coming up on Christmas, and we had agreed that we weren't going to give each other any presents because we didn't have any money. And we were just going to go and do good. You know, we were going to go to the Alcathon. We were going to help other people. I mean, was there no end to my, mer- you know, goodness and that kind of stuff? <laughs> and he came home from work that day, and he said, I got a present for you. And, of course, there's the conflicting emotions of the ever-interesting alcoholic mind. You son of a bitch. Oh, pardon me. You SOB, you, you said we weren't going to do that, and now you got me one, and why didn't I get one? I'm so sorry. You know, I've got all these conflicts. And within a, just a minute, he went into the bathroom, and in a few seconds, he, the door 
just banged open and he jumped out stark naked. And he had a big red bow tied, you know where. And he's singing, Here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus. <laughs> and he made me laugh. And when, when Marty was talking about the first time he laughed, it made me laugh. You know, there, I tell you, laughter is God's music. It really is God's music. I don't think that it's possible for me to feel any emotion other than sheer joy when I am just belly laughing because I am out of me. When I am laughing, I am not thinking about me. I am thinking about laughing. I am feeling happy. And, you know, I think my God, my Father, my big father, all he really wants is to meet you. And uh, we spent lots and lots of years being miserable and making other people miserable. And my deal is, you know, I want to be happy, but I want to make you happy too. I want the very best for the people around me, and I want the best for you as soon as you can get it. <laughs> and that's not because I'm good. Because I'm not good. It's just because I've learned. And I feel. And I didn't feel for a lot of years. So she made me feel. She let me laugh. I took up art shortly after that. We moved around quite a bit, you know, and, and the search, and I lost a child. And that's, that's tough, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're, um, regardless of whether you're alcoholic, and that's tough to lose a child. And, uh, I agree. For a year. And he held me. And he talked to me. And my sponsor talked to me. And the people that I sponsored did little things for me. I cooked dinner. You know, in our area, this is very difficult. I have seen Alcoholics Anonymous in action. One of the people that my husband sponsors is married to a woman. They both got, they got married kind of late in life. And nobody ever thought they'd have any kids, but they had two little kids. They had this little Frankie. And, uh, Nancy got pregnant with her second child. She was 40 years old. And, uh, she was feeling kind of bad and she went to the doctor and, this is the point. In the space of a few seconds, our lives can change for good. She thought she had sinus problems. And she had adenocarcinoma in her brain. She was seven months pregnant. She couldn't take any treatment except some cobalt therapy, some, uh, Proton beam therapy at um, up in Boston because of the harm that it would affect the baby, and she chose the baby. Now, Nancy's just an ordinary alcoholic member of AA. She's, you know, she's kind of a 
She can be a crab, you know. I mean, I know her. She's no angel or anything. But through this whole thing, losing this thing with a dignity, she is not afraid to meet her maker. She knows it's coming, or maybe a month. But she's doing it like a good AA. And we're taking suppers to her. And we're taking her to her appointment. And we're helping her husband. And we're taking her children for weekends. This is what, this is the best of AA. Now, if you like everybody in AA, you're not going to enough meetings. <laughs> Because there's jerks in AA, just like there are, I can be, I'm a jerk sometimes. But this has brought out the best. And I, when I took, I took her dinner the other day and I, I was standing with her in the kitchen, she didn't have any hair. It's the most magnificent hair. Oh, it's the most gorgeous hair. And it's all gone. And she's a little puffed up. But I just put my arms around her and I said, you are such an example to me of the bravery and the spirit that lives in all of us if we want it. And she said, I'm not brave. I'm scared. But not because I don't want to die, but because I don't want to leave my baby. And I was able to share with her when I lost the baby. And now I felt about that. Nothing happens in God's world without reason. It's reason. And I don't know what they are sometimes. But they always can be put to good use if I just have the right motive. And it says that in the book. So I'll love her, and I'll help her care for him, even after she's gone. I'm proud of that AA group for what they're doing. Because we're all alcoholics, and we don't always like to make meatloaf. <laughs> I guess the biggest thing that's happened to me since I've been an Alcoholics Anonymous is, is the ability that I have found to feel God. I, I want, you know, I don't see burning bushes or anything, and I don't, I don't see the face of God, and I don't, He doesn't talk to me directly or anything. Um, I have never had to go anywhere special, um, I go outside. And it's outside where I see, feel, sense the presence of God. Mostly. But I also see Him in the eyes 
of the people in my meeting. And I see him in the face of the new man when the light comes on. But I experience real joy when I'm outside by myself, usually with an animal. I see foxes. I see everything. I mean, I see rabbits. I see rats. I mean, I had a whole colony of rats in my backyard. I have a great big backseat backyard. Two lots. And I had rats eating my deck one time, and we had to have the AA exterminator come over, and <laughs> I didn't want to know about it. I didn't want to hear about it. You know, I don't tell me they're going to die and dry up and become mummies. I don't want to hear it. I see raccoons. I love seeing. They love marshmallows. I like to put marshmallows out there. So I got a bunch of diabetic raccoons. I'll bet. <laughs> they, I like to see them. They look so funny. You know, they pull them apart and they get all caught up. And they don't have any natural saliva. You know, so you have to put a pot of water out there. They go down there and dunk in there. <laughs> I like to see the little babies in the spring. You know, when they come up and. And, and, you know, people can tell me, oh, they're full of fleas, and they'll do this, and they'll do that, and they, you know, I don't care. They're God's creatures. You know, I just, I love watching them. And uh, we've been feeding these boxes for a long time, and, and uh, oh, this past storm has really disrupted their little area down there, but by golly, he was up there this morning when I put the food down, he was up there eating. This one particular day was really cold. It was about 39 below. And I had on my gown coat. And I had my two dogs with me. And my husband was on the road somewhere. And, uh, you know, the thing that's amazing about this is the fact that I died somewhere in my drinking. And the person that's here today is not the person that was there. That person somehow died. And I had a lot of trouble being a new person. But the person that is today can feel and sense and intuitively know. And I was uh, walking my old dog, and I put the fox food down, and I said, here's your breakfast, Foxy. And I turned around to leave. Usually, you have to get back about a half block, and then they come up, and I have binoculars, and I look at them, peeking and stuff. Really, really pretty. And they bring the kits in the spring, and I love seeing them. And that. Uh, I turned to leave, and I felt it. I just felt it. And I glanced back over my shoulder, and as close to me as the front row here, walked the fox. And he was looking right at me. 
and never to the guy that way. And one by one, he took those old balls out and laid down. And see, I think he was saying thank you. I think he was saying thank you for the food. Thanks for all the time that you've come down here. And you didn't see me. Thanks for helping me with my baby. Now you know that isn't a conversation that went on. <laughs> but that's what I think. And that's what I feel. God comes to me like that. You know, he came to me in an airplane that was about to crash. I was convinced this airplane was going to crash. I mean, I don't, I love flying. I hate crashing and burning. I don't want to crash and burn. I'm scared to death. I'm rocketing all over this. I'm, I'm like Red Fox. I'm coming. I'm coming. <laughs> this is the big one. You know, and I just, I'm just praying. I'm sweating. I'm sick. The thing is just all over the sky. It's just terrible. I hear something rustling behind me. I turn around. There's a woman back there. She's got a brown paper bag. She pulls out a bottle of vodka. She takes off the top. She takes a big plug, and I felt better. <laughs> That's God. That's God. I could have felt sorry for myself. I could have been mad because I didn't get to drink too. I could have been over. I just thought it was hysterical. I was in San Jose. I was really into myself, very bad into myself because there were so many people there. I was Saturday night speaker. There were 5,000 people, 10,000 eyeballs looking at you. <laughs> and I was just, my, my brain was turning. It was, you're going to get up there and you're not going to be able to say anything. What do you know anyway? You're just a dumb broad from Nebraska. What are you going to do? Get up there and say, go Big Red? You know, because I'm also a, an ardent football fan, as is my friend John Evans over there. Ardent Husker fan, by the way. And uh, all of a sudden, I'm, we're sitting out in this amphitheater watching this play. And I got on my yellow silk speaking dress. I'm listening to the play, but I'm listening to my head more than I'm listening to the play. Back and forth, back and forth. I felt something wet hit my hand. I looked up. I thought it was raining. I looked down. It was white. <laughs> my friend who was sitting next to me goes, Ooh, ooh, a bird has crapped on your back. And oh boy, it was gull poop. And I mean, it was a big, it was bad. I mean, it was bad. And all of a sudden, it was okay. It was okay. I was just a broad from Nebraska. And some, for some people, birds sing. For me, they crap. You know? It just took all of that selfishness and self-centeredness. It took away the fun. I thought, just get up there and tell them about the birds. And that's all they wanted to see anyway. I just brushed out the bits and showed them my bird trap, you know. That's God. God sent me that bird. Don't take yourself so seriously. You know, what 
you know, don't take yourself so seriously. I love you. You, you, you're loved by your friends. If you can't carry a message, forget it. Never mind. Go home, be a sponsor, do a thing in your meeting. You know, don't worry about it. Don't, you're not so darn important. That's God. And he cheers me up. I was, this is the last word. He cheers me, I promise. He cheers me up. I was walking. And my knees were hurting. This is just, I don't know, three, four months ago. Knees were hurting. Back was hurting. Neck was hurting. Some people that we had trusted for years had betrayed us. That's what it felt. Um, we, you know, we were, Dick had gone down and applied for social security, you know, he was 65, you know, and gonna, you know, and my, the way I was thinking, die any minute, you know, and <laughs> had two dogs who were old, and one of them had a big lung tumor, and, you know, and the others got arthritis, and, I mean, I was just, but sad singing and slow walking that morning, I'll tell you. And I'm just walking along like this, and I'm just in a morass of self-pity, you know, this spiritual giant that I am, you know. <laughs> and I heard a hawk. And I looked up, and, and where we walked, there's this old hawk. He's kind of moth-eaten looking. He's old. And he had those wings were spread out like this and the tips of those things were turned up and he was swooping and he was riding those currents and he just was. It was a sound of pure joy. And all of a sudden my knees didn't hurt anymore. My dogs were gonna live forever. I was married to the silver fox. And God was in his head. God sent me that hawk. In every day of my life, when I am present, he sends me you. And I appreciate it. Thank you.